Hey, good morning, 1045 service. Great to see all of you. Enjoyed that music today. Listen, ladies, you need to register. If you haven't already done so, you need to register for the spring ladies retreat called So Be It. Tyson and Trish will be leading worship during that retreat. And this is the last weekend for the early bird registration. So don't wait any longer than today. You can do that in the commons after the service is over today. You can do that online. Don't forget to register for that Retreat. I want to welcome everybody, all those folks across the street, the video venue, all those joining us online. I want to give a special hello to all of our snowbirds who have abandoned us here in Indiana for a few weeks. I want to let you know that the National Weather Service has uh, issued a heat alert here in Indiana, <laughs> central Indiana. Hope you're having fun. But we had to uh, institute a no tank tops and board shorts day here at the church because the weather's so warm. But Glad you're in Florida and Arizona and other parts of the world. No, we're glad to have you here today. You got your Bible? Did I say open up to Mark chapter 12? Did I say that? If not, open up to Mark chapter 12. And this weekend, we're concluding this New Year series called Rediscovering Jesus with a message called A Simple Plan. While you're turning there, let's just remind ourselves of where we've been. You know, I told you from the very beginning that this series was all about learning or really honestly for most of us, being reminded of who Jesus is, but even more than that, what he has to offer to ordinary people like you and me. So the first weekend of the new year, the message was actually called What Jesus Wants to Do for You. came from Luke chapter 4 in that great passage where Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth, goes in the synagogue, reads from the scroll of Isaiah, a messianic, messianic prophecy about himself and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Then the next week, we talked about the familiar story of the uh, woman with the bleeding issue. We looked at it from Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 5, and how she got the courage as an act of just great desperation to work her way through the crowd and reach out and touch the hem of Jesus' garment, just touch the edge of his robe, knowing that if she could do that, she would be healed, and she was, and you know that after that, she just wanted to slip off into anonymity, but Jesus didn't let her do that because Jesus knows the power of a personal encounter, and so he pointed her out, and he blessed her, told her that was her faith that healed her. What a great lesson that was. Then last week, we kind of shifted gears, and we talked about not so much about what Jesus wants to do for you, but what you need to do for him. And Jesus has so much to offer us, but it only happens when we're completely committed to him. And so we talked about taking Jesus seriously, and we looked at Matthew chapter 8, all these different things that we need to abandon from our lives to make sure that we give room for Jesus and we take him seriously. Well, this morning's message is just called A Simple Plan. I love this message today. I love the economy of effort that Jesus uses in communicating to us what we need to know about living a full and a fruitful and a satisfying life that is pleasing to God. So let's not waste any more time. Stand together with me wherever you are in reverence and respect for God's word. By the way, when we finish this series this weekend, we'll begin a new one next week that lasts for seven weeks from Revelation chapters 2 and 3 called Dear Church. We'll look at seven letters written to seven churches, and it's going to be a powerful study, I know. In your bulletin insert, it says that we're going to look at verses 28 through 34, but let's just read verses 28 through 31. This is pretty much my favorite part of church service every week is just doing this public reading of Scripture. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. All right, there it is. May God add his blessing to the reading. You can be seated this morning. Before we talk specifically about this passage of Scripture, let's take just a minute and set the context, or in other words, let's make sure that we all understand together where Jesus is and what's going on in his life when he has this encounter with this man. It is Wednesday of Passion Week for Jesus. You know what that means, right? That means Jesus is just two days away from his crucifixion. It's Wednesday of Passion Week. It's right in the middle of the last week, in a sense, of his life. The day before this, on Tuesday, Jesus has cleared the temple, this dramatic activity of going in the temple, and literally, we get in our minds the picture of Jesus overthrowing tables and driving out the money changers and those who were extorting the people who had gathered there for the Passover. I've talked to you about this before. Remember, the religious leaders were in charge of not just the religious life of Israel, but the civil life of Israel as well, and so they let this happen in the temple. They let these people come in, these money changers, and set up tables where they sold animals for sacrifice and where they exchanged money because people traveled from all over. And it's just like when you and I go to a different country, we have to exchange our currency for the currency of the country that we're in. But what was happening is they were just robbing the people. For example, people were coming to make a sacrifice, and the law stated that every sacrifice had to be absolutely perfect and without blemish. But the sacrifice had to go through an inspection first. And so let's just imagine that you were bringing a lamb to sacrifice and you gave it to be inspected. They would take it in a back room. Even though it was spotless and without blemish when you brought it, they might break a leg of the lamb in the back room and come out and say, this lamb's not suitable. You're going to have to buy a new one. You had no place to go to do that except right there. And they charged an exorbitant rate for a lamb. The exchange rates were out of control, so unfair to the visitor to Jerusalem. That infuriated Jesus, and so he literally just turned over the tables, and he drove them out of the temple. This wasn't the first time Jesus had ever done this. If you're familiar with his life, you know he did this back early in his ministry. It's recorded for us in John chapter 2. Well, that also infuriated the religious leaders of the day. And I'm talking, when I talk about religious leaders, I'm talking about a group of men known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were a group of 70 men that were made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, a select number of scribes or teachers of the law, that's one and the same thing. It depends on what translation of the Bible you're reading from. A scribe or a teacher of the law, that's basically the same thing, along with the high priest. And they were really, really upset with Jesus, not just about what he did in the temple, but they were upset with him just because of his growing popularity, and they felt their power slipping away, and so... At this period in Jesus' life, they're doing absolutely everything they can to try to discredit him. And that's really what happens when we get to this passage of Scripture. For the most part, they, they weren't very smart. And they tried to discredit him by asking him questions that they didn't think he could answer or questions that they thought he would answer incorrectly, which would give them the ability to discredit him. And right before this passage that we read, beginning in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12, that had happened. The Sadducees had come and asked him a question. In fact, skip back to verse 18. It's an absolutely ridiculous question. In, in fact, verse 18 begins like this. Then the Sadducees, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Everybody look up here at me for a moment. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were different. It's, we don't have time to go into that. 
the depths of their differences, but the Sadducees were like the uh, wealthy aristocrats of the Jewish religious system, and they had some quirky beliefs. They didn't believe in anything spiritual. They didn't believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in, in spirits of any kind. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and yet they asked Jesus a question about the resurrection, and it's a ridiculous question. Keep reading. It says, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, That if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too at the resurrection that they didn't believe in. Whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? That's a little bit more than just an average family problem there, isn't it? <laughs> well, you can go on and read Jesus. Gee, these guys were no match for Jesus. And he answered the question. He gave them a great answer to the question. Well, then we move to verse 28, our verse 28. And uh, what we see here is just a continuing, ongoing effort of the religious leaders to try to ask Jesus a question to trap him. And now it's the Pharisees' turn to do this. But you don't normally, you don't see that. You don't see that real naturally in the way Mark records this event. Because in the way Mark records this event, it, it looks like that after Jesus answered this question by the Sadducees, that one of the scribes or one of the teachers of the law just kind of happened to stumble by and hear the answer and decide he's going to ask Jesus a question of his own because verse 28 says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and then he asked the question about the greatest commandment. Well, here's the deal. That's the way Mark records this story. But if you go to Matthew's gospel, which is, which is where we find a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 22, you see that there's a little backstory. There's a little bit more going on here than just a guy stumbling across Jesus and the Sadducees and then deciding to ask his own question. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to put Matthew 22, verses 34 through 36 up on the screen. This is what it says. Hearing that, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That's what he had just done. The Pharisees got together. In other words, the Pharisees had a meeting. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, everybody look up here. You know what that tells us? That tells us this wasn't just a random thing. It looks that way. It looks harmless. It looks random in Mark's gospel, but it really wasn't. And this was a question that was dreamed up in the minds of these religious leaders, and it was dreamed up in their minds to try to trap Jesus. See, the big problem, or one of the big problems the Pharisees had with Jesus is they thought that all of his teaching was contrary to the law. And so they thought that if they could ask him a question where he gave an answer that elevated his teaching above the teaching of the law... They had him right where they wanted him. And so they came up with this question, of all the commandments, which is the greatest? And Jesus just gives this incredible answer, the most simple, straightforward answer possible. He wasn't evasive. He wasn't hesitant. He didn't say, well, you know, all of them are important in their own way. He didn't answer their question with a question. You ever notice when somebody really doesn't want to answer your question, they give you a question back? He didn't say, well, why are you asking? Why is that important to you? He just gave him a real simple, real straightforward answer, and we read it there in our text. Now, beyond answering the question, and here's what I want to share with you this morning. Beyond answering the question, 
I think what Jesus does is he gives people like you and me, ordinary people like you and me. Remember, this series is all about understanding what Jesus has to offer ordinary people like you and me. He gives us this really simple plan for how to live a life that's pleasing to God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had that question in your mind on some level? What do I really need to do to be pleasing to God? What do I really need to do? What does God really want from me? Jesus answers the question right here. He gives us the answer of how to live a life that's pleasing to God and also how to live a life that is full. We all want that. How to live a life that is fruitful. We all all want to be productive with our lives. And how to live a life that's satisfying. We want to find satisfaction in life. Jesus tells us in his answer that in order to have all of that, we just have to understand four things. Right down next to number one in your insert. We'll move through them pretty quickly. Actually, we'll spend a little bit of time on the first two and actually move through the second two pretty quickly. The first thing is this. You have to understand how great God is. That's number one. How great God is. When he was asked the question, which of the commandments was the greatest commandment, Jesus began his answer like this. He said, the most important one is this. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's right in the very beginning. Now, you may or may not know, depending on how familiar you are with your Bible, you may or may not know that what Jesus is doing there is he's actually quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter and the fourth verse, the beginning of an ancient passage of Scripture that was called the Shema. You look at it on the screen there, it looks like it would be pronounced Shema, but it's Shema. Everyone say Shema, Shema. So when your wife says something that bothers you, just say, oh, Shema, just Shema. (laughs) He's quoting an ancient passage, the beginning of an ancient passage called the Shema, which was the very first prayer that Jewish children would learn to pray, were taught to pray, and also a prayer that continues to be repeated even today, morning and evening, by faithful and observant Jews. It was a very important passage of Scripture. It was a confession of sorts. And it was a confession to proclaim that there is only one God, so you need to love that God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. So what Jesus is saying as he begins to answer the question about which is the greatest commandment is this. He's saying in everything we do, every single day of our lives, we need to remember how great God is. How great God is. Let me make it even more simple. He's saying that in everything we do, every single day of our lives, We need to remember that God comes first. This is the first step to living a full, fruitful, and satisfying life that is pleasing to God. You remember that in everything, every single day, God comes first. He's the center of the universe. Not you. You're not the center of the universe. Not me. But God. Theologian David Hawks once said, The basic human problem is that everyone believes that there is a God and I'm it. But that's not the way it is. That's not the way it is. The Shema reminds us that's not the case. One of my favorite writers, and you may have written some of or read some of his books, is a guy named Philip Yancey. I don't agree with everything that he says, but I love his writing style. I love the way that he can answer some of the deepest questions of our lives, the deepest spiritual questions of our lives in real simple terms. And in his book called Reaching for the Invisible God, he talks about being with some men some, one day who were scaling a mountain in Colorado that was, had had an elevation of 14,000 feet. He said after trekking 
upward for hours, his party began to climb huge chunks of granite. When they finally stopped to catch their breath, he said he went to the edge of where they were and looked down, but all he could see were two tiny dots on the edge of the timberline, and he just decided that they were rocks until the dots began to move, and he realized that they were climbers. And then he realized that just hours before, he was one of those dots, and he wrote these words. He said, you get a tiny fractional glimpse of what God must see all the time. Because in comparison to God, the greatness of God, that's what we are. We're like tiny dots. You know, I don't travel as much as some of you do. I'm sure some of you travel for a living, and you might get on an airplane sometimes every week to go somewhere. I probably get on an airplane and go somewhere 15 to 16 times a year. Most of it's in the States, but sometimes I travel internationally. And if I'm sitting by a window and I look out the window at an elevation of maybe 10, 20, 30,000 feet below, there are thousands upon thousands of tiny specks that I see below. And those tiny specks represent buildings and stores and houses that represent lives that are in no way connected to my life. How foolish would it be then for me to live my life as if I'm the center of the universe when the truth is, from another person's perspective, on a different flight, I'm that tiny speck. I'm that next to nothing that can barely be seen. And my point is not that our lives don't matter because they do. My point is the world doesn't revolve around you and me. The world doesn't revolve around you and it doesn't revolve around me revolves around God, and so we need to understand how great God is. That's the first thing we have to do in embracing this simple, this really simple plan that Jesus offers to us to live lives that are pleasing to God, that are full and fruitful and satisfying. What matters most in life is not your personal happiness. What matters most in life is not your personal success. It's not your wealth. It's not your health, your good health, even as important as that is. It's not your good relationships. What matters most in life for every one of us is are we connected to the great God of the universe? Because everything in life revolves around him. And so we need to understand first how great God is. Right down next to number two, we need to understand how important love is. That's number two, how important love is. Because once we understand how great God is, Jesus quotes from the Shema there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. He goes on to say, love the Lord your God. Now note this, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now here's a lesson for all of us, and you don't, if you don't remember anything else we talked about today, but you remember this, it'll be okay. For Christians, and I hope that describes you this morning. I hope you're a Christian. I hope your life is right with God through faith in Christ. For Christians, nothing should be more fundamental or more important in our lives than loving God. So if you're a Christian, the most important thing in your life should be loving God. Have you ever noticed that people who are successful in life, pretty much doesn't matter what they do, are almost always people who excel in the fundamentals of whatever it is that they do? They excel in the fundamentals. 
We're a week away from the Super Bowl, and it's been a full football season, so let's think about it from the perspective of a football player for just a moment. A football player who excels in the fundamentals is going to be successful in their football career. A football player who blocks well, who tackles well, who runs well, runs good routes, makes good throws, whatever it is that he does related to whatever position he plays, as long as he does the fundamentals well, then he's going to excel in his football life and his football career. And that's what's important to the coach. The What's important to the coach is teaching the fundamentals and making sure that you stick to the fundamentals and you excel in the fundamentals. You don't ever hear a coach coming up to a player and the first thing he says is, show me your touchdown dance. (laughs) Or let me hear your trash talk. Give me your best line. You don't hear that because that's that's not what's most important. What's most important is the fundamentals. When my son Andrew played baseball, whether it was in Little League or all the way through college, There would always be times when maybe he would go through a period where he was struggling at the plate, struggling to see the ball, struggling to hit the ball. And so he'd come and talk to me when he was little or when he was in high school or when I was visiting in college so I could watch him play. And what we would always do is just go back to the most basic fundamentals of hitting a baseball. I'm talking about we would go back to the stance. We would go back to the grip, the way he held the bat, the grip pressure, the weight distribution in his stance. All those things. Your first natural inclination is to get into a batting cage and just beat balls until you work something out. But if you're doing it incorrectly, it's not going to help. You've got to go back to the fundamentals. It's the same way in business. When you hire a business manager, you want somebody who excels in the fundamentals, who balances the checkbook and keeps accurate statements, who gets bills paid on time, who files taxes the right way, and on and on and on. Well, it's the same in the Christian life as well. If you want to excel in the Christian life, you've got to excel in the fundamentals. But the problem is, here's the problem. As Christians, we sometimes get confused about what the fundamentals really are. If somebody says, what's the the thing that that Christians emphasize more than anything else? And we'd have to say, well, you know, it kind of varies depending on where you are and who you're talking to. Some Christians think think that our our most important priority is fighting the culture. Some people think, some Christians think our most important priority should be having some kind of a spiritual political agenda or political process, something like that. Those things might have their place. But do we really want the most remarkable thing that somebody can say about our lives as Christians? Or do we really want the most remarkable thing that somebody could say about the church is a list of all the things that we're against? Is that what we really want? I don't think so. We don't want the most remarkable thing that somebody could say about the church to be that we vote overwhelmingly Republican or that we are for school vouchers or we're against gay marriage and we take a stand for biblical marriage. And I'm saying all those things are important. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not diminishing all those things. I'm not saying you have to vote Republican. Just vote your conscience. But all these things are important, and we stand up for biblical truth all the time. But we can't lose sight of the most essential priority of our lives as believers, of our lives of faith, and that is to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And so when people look at us as Christians or they look at us as the church, they should be moved by the passion that we have in our love for God. It should be the most remarkable thing about us. So here's the question. Is loving God the most fundamental priority of your life right now? Whoever you are, whatever your age, whatever season of life you're in, is it the most fundamental priority of your life? It should be. And then everything else flows from that priority. 
Everything else we say, everything else we do, every other, every other value that we have, it flows from the priority of loving God. Someone once asked the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they answered their own question by saying, it simply means to be a lover of God. A lover of God. So if you want God to have his proper place in your life, then you need to understand how important love is. You need to understand how great God is. That's number one. And number two, how important love is. And we're talking about love for God. And let me tell you one of the reasons why that's so important. It's important for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons why that's so important is because when we love God deeply and passionately, it makes it a lot easier for us to obey him. It makes obedience to his commands and obedience to his will seem less burdensome for us, less like a chore for us. In fact, if I hold my place in Mark chapter 12, you don't have to do this, but if I hold my place in Mark chapter 12 and I turn back to the book of Deuteronomy that I talked about earlier where we find the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I open it up there then here's the deal. As I have my Bible open in front of me, everybody look up here. On the right side of my page, I have the Deuteronomy chapter 6 right here. On the left side of my page, you know what I have? I have Deuteronomy chapter 5. You know what the heading is for Deuteronomy chapter 5 in my Bible? The Ten Commandments. Everyone say commandments. Commandments. The Ten Commandments on the left. On the right, right above Deuteronomy chapter 6 where we find the Shema, it says, Love the Lord your God. Commandments. And love for God. Now listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. These are the, note this, commands, decrees, and laws. The Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you also may enjoy long life. And so what we see there is two times in verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the author is talking about laws and commands and decrees, and then he goes on to begin the Shema, and right in the very beginning of the Shema, we see these words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, everybody look up here, and I'm going to ask you a question. What is the one thing, what is the one thing that drives obedience better than anything else in the world, better than anything else in our lives? What's the one thing that drives our obedience to God better than anything else? Is it fear? Everyone say no. No. Is it self-preservation? Everyone say no. Is it love? Yes. It's our love for God. It's our love for God that drives our obedience. Why? Because when we love God deeply, we know, we just know intuitively that everything he asks us to do, every command that he gives us, every aspect of his will is not to harm us or hurt us, but it's for our what? Our good. It's for our good. Let's think about this from the perspective of parents for a moment. Maybe you're like me and your kids are grown and they're out of the house, but you're still a mom and dad, right? Maybe your kids are still at home. Maybe they're sitting with you here in church. Let me ask you a question. Why do you want your kids to obey you? If you, had to, if, you had to, if you had to break it down to one reason, you had to choose one reason as a parent that you wanted your kids to obey you, what would it be? I think you can make the case that it would be because they love you. And because they love you, they trust you. Because they love you, they know every time you tell them what they can and can't do, every time you place a restriction on them, every time you put a boundary around them, they love you. They know, even if they don't like it in the moment, they know that it's there for their 
safety and protection for their best interest. Love drives obedience. And this is why we need to remember the importance of love. And that's why love for God should be the hallmark of our lives as Christians. If we don't have love for God, if we don't love him first above all else, you know what we're doing? We're just playing at religion when we come to church like this. We're just playing games. Love is critical. All right, number one, we need to remember how great God is. Number two, how important love is. Write this down next to number three. We need to remember how valuable people are, how valuable people are. Because Jesus goes on, they ask him what the greatest commandment was. He answered the question just for good measure in verse 31. He said, the second is this. Hey, you want to know the first? I'm going to give you the first two. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. You notice that people who love God are sometimes capable of doing some pretty bad things to other people under the guise of their love for God. That, for example, is the logic behind terrorism. When religious extremists harm other people, even take the lives of other people, And they claim they're doing it as a demonstration for their love for God or of their love for God. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But it's not just those kinds of extreme examples that we need to pay attention to. We can say that we love God and we can look down on other people. We can diminish other people in all kinds of ways. But Jesus makes it clear that people matter to God, all people. And so not only should loving God be at the top of our list on a daily basis along with recognizing the greatness of God, but loving people should be as well. That's why Jesus gave his disciples this command shortly before his arrest and crucifixion. In John 13, 34 and 35, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That doesn't mean just being willing to help people who are needy. That's certainly a part of it. It means that we recognize the value of every human life, wherever we go, whoever they are. Everyone. We recognize that everyone is important, that everyone matters, even the people that we disagree with, even people who say that they don't like us, even people who say that they're our enemies when we think, we've never done anything to you. We need to love people. Why? Because God loves them, because Everybody needs to see a living example of the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God in our lives. So this is the third critical part of living a life that is pleasing to God, a full, fruitful, satisfying life. It's recognizing how great God is, how important love is, how valuable people are, and the fourth one is this, how special you are. Write that down next to number four. How special you are. Because Jesus said that we need to love, love our neighbor, what did he say? As ourselves. He said, love your neighbor as, what did he say? Yourself. Okay, you're not, you're not with me. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what? When I was sitting in my desk and I was putting this together, I had kind of an aha moment when it came to this. And I'm thinking about this whole idea of loving yourself, which honestly I don't ever give a whole lot of thought about. But I came to this aha moment, and so I'm going to read to you exactly what I typed in my notes as I was finishing this up. I wrote these words. I typed these words. Without question, I bet you can agree with me. I bet you can relate to this. Without question, the one person I'm, almost the mo- I'm always the most impatient with is me. The one person... I always have the greatest difficulty forgiving 
is me. The one person who never measures up to the standard I expect is me. The person I become exasperated with more than anyone else is me. And I could go on and on and on. I really believe, friends, that this is a big reason why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, because if we can't see value in ourselves, how are we going to be able to see value in other people? If we don't love ourselves, how are we going to love others? You know, I realized a long time ago that oftentimes the people that I have the most difficulty with when it comes to loving them or even liking them are people who have faults and flaws that remind me of me. Can you relate to that? And so if we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves and we don't love ourselves, where does that leave our neighbor? There's a balance that we maintain in the Christian life because the New Testament warns us not to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 3 that in humility we're to consider others better than ourselves. In Romans 12, 3, he literally says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And yet on the other hand, we need to see ourselves on some level. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. And God loves us. God sees us as valuable. God sees you as valuable, just like he sees everyone else. He loves you even when you are not very lovable. I read while we're preparing this, Jesus said that we're to love others as we love ourselves. In order to do this, we first have to learn to love ourselves as we know we should love others. So you know what that means for you and me practically? That means that you and me, we've got to give ourselves a break sometimes. We need to be patient with ourselves. We need to forgive ourselves. We need to encourage ourselves. We need to treat ourselves with kindness. We need to take the pressure off and give ourselves a break. Because remember, write this down in your notes. Of all the people in the Bible, of all the people that you're supposed to love, you're one of them. Of all the people that I'm supposed to love, that God commands me to love, I'm one of them even if it's hard to do. All right, everybody look up here. That's it. Simple plan. It's so simple. This is what Jesus offers to ordinary people like you and me. This simple plan about how to live a life that's pleasing to God. This simple plan about how to live a full, we all want that, a fruitful, we all want that, a satisfying life. We just understand how great God is. That means that he is the most important thing in our lives. We realize that the world doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around God. He's our first priority. Number two, how important love is. We're talking about our love for God, our lives. The one thing that people should know about us above everything else is how much we love God. Number three, how valuable people are. Because we love God, we should love others. And number four, how special we are. How special we are. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling in your life on some level, you're here this morning and and you just feel like, you know, my life is just one busy activity after another. My, My life, especially my spiritual life, is just like a spiritual frenzy and I'm running myself ragged and I'm trying to measure up and I'm trying to be pleasing to God with all the things that I do. You need to stop and take a really deep breath and understand it doesn't have to be that way. You just need to follow this simple plan. You just need to let everything in your life flow from this simple plan. This is what Jesus offers to ordinary people like you and me. And if you're having, a tr- if you're having difficulty loving God 
or you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're listening to me and you're not a Christian, and you feel like you're a long way from God, you don't even know how to love God. Let me just tell you this. We love God. We love God because God first loved us. Somebody say amen to that. That's, that's, that's why we love God. That's how we love God, because we understand that he first loved us. And he demonstrated that love for us in the greatest way. How did he do it? Paul says in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love God because he first loved us. And your life can be changed if you can just embrace this simple truth. I want you to pray with me.